Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts interactive podcast presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance for Wednesday, May 22nd, 2019. I'm your host, Bill Lempert. The month of May plays host to Mental Health Awareness Month. And this year marks its 70th anniversary, started in 1949 by the National Association for Mental Health, which is now known as the Mental Health America. Each year, they select a different theme. For 2019, it is body image, how we think and feel about our bodies. Included in this year's toolkit are topics including animal companionship, spirituality, humor, work-life balance, and social connections as ways to boost mental health and wellness. Tamping Down the Stress Level on the Farm is an article co-written by Julie Murphy, Arizona Farm Bureau Outreach Director. She will join us to share what she discovered and reported on. Then Michael O'Gorman, Executive Director at Farmer Veteran Coalition, tells us about this important group that he founded and how they're helping bring a new breed of farmers to agriculture. Then later on in the podcast, we're joined by first-generation Tennessee farmer Matt Nicewander, an ag advocate who by day is nurse practitioner working with farmers in the early mornings and at night is a working dairy farmer. Julie is outreach director for Arizona Farm Bureau and oversees all Farm Bureau's communication and outreach channels, including social media, public relations, marketing, and county outreach management duties. She belongs to Project Central's Class 7, the Concentrated Rural Leadership Program supported by the University of Arizona. This native of Arizona grew up on a cotton and alfalfa farm in Pinnell County with three brothers and was in production agriculture with her parents until 2005. Her book, Fresh Air, talks about life growing up in southern Arizona in a rural environment. Julie, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you so much, Phil. Now, you write that a strong majority of farmers and farm workers say that financial issues, farm or business problems, and fear of actually losing the farm impact their farmers' mental health. Now, according to a new national morning consult research poll, how are farmers dealing with this stress? It's got to be enormous. It is tough, and it's an important issue, and I'm glad that they came out with this study. One of the first things, though, that I want to highlight is mental health does not discriminate. It crosses into all demographics, professions, and ethnicities. But one of the things that I do believe is the circumstances in farm and ranch country right now, and I, I call it the perfect storm. It's the low commodity prices, the catastrophic weather that we're experiencing right now in the Midwest, and trade wars. You layer that on top of mental health issues in general, and all of a sudden you have these added, what I want to call circumstantial stress to basically intensify the problem. And it's obvious, it's evident, and it's important that we address it. And also, to add add to your list of inputs here, um, you have farmers who are working 20 hours a day. So physically, they're run down, uh, and then you throw all the things that you said on top of that Oh, my God, it's it's horrible. How much of a stigma, though, is is it on our farms and ranches to even talk about mental health? Well, as Morning Consult indicated in the study, there is still a stigma. But one of the things, and I want to give her props because I think she gave some great insight, is this Ruth Tudor Markham, and she's with the North Carolina Agro Medicine Institute. 
She advises that there's clear signals specific to farm and ranch families that can be identified, which I thought was very valuable. But her biggest thing is communication is not weakness. And so because there's a stigma that still exists in farm and ranch country with it, at least if we get to that first step of communicating, we might override some of that stigma that still exists amongst our farm and ranch families. So one of the one of the farmers you met with was Sherry Saylor. Uh, she suggested that farmers actually give more attention to their animals and their crops than they do to themselves and their families. When she told you that, what was your takeaway? It was confirmation to me, having grown up on a farm, sometimes, you know, we're 24-7 in agriculture, it seems like, especially if we also have animal agriculture. And one of the things I remember just partnering with my parents is that you really couldn't shut down. When you're in the midst of production, whether that be planting or harvesting, you're in the midst of all of it and you really can't stop. So when she said that, it was confirmation to me of my personal experience. Now, you mentioned that they came up with some highlights to really look at farmers and ranchers and see how stressed they are and the telltale signs of a mental health crisis. What are a few of the top ones that she listed that you came away with and were very impressed with? Yes, and this is what is so valuable is they're specific to farm and ranch country. So things such as the decline in care of crops, animals, and farms, if there's a deterioration of personal appearance, now that may happen with somebody else in another profession, but it's certainly another signal here in farm and ranch country. Increasing life insurance, uh, withdrawing from social events, family and friends, a change in mood and or routine. Um, that it can also deal with an increase in farm accidents. That's certainly specific to the agriculture industry. The family shows signs of stress. There's increase in physical complaints, difficulties sleeping. So there's a whole list of things that are kind of specific to our industry, but other industries also. But here's some of the other verbal cues that I think are really interesting. And it goes back to what Tudor Markham said about communicating is you hear, you know, maybe the primary breadwinner for that farm that he or she is feeling trapped, that there's nothing to live for. Another cue might be that my family would be better off without me. I don't want to be a burden. So as family members on the farm, if we hear those kind of statements, that's when we begin to communicate and be there for that individual who's feeling that stress. Well, Julie, thank you for a a fabulous article. Everybody needs to, to read this and highlighting a very important issue that agriculture faces today. And thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts. Thank you, Phil. I believe deeply in American agriculture and the rich reward it can give to us all who take part in it. Sharing that opportunity with men and women coming home from war has been a wonderful and humbling experience. Michael Gorman, the founder and executive director of the Farmer Veteran Coalition, said that, and he joins us today on Farm Food Facts. 
Michael began farming in 1970. After 20 years in 1990, he was hired to run the first organic farm in Salinas, California, which became the country's leading grower of packaged salad greens. He then went on to lead growing for the Earthbound label and in 1998 began developing 1,600 acres of intensive organic vegetable and herb production in the northern half of Baja, California for Jacobs Farms Del Cabo, including 30 acres of indoor tomatoes. Then, in 2008, he left his job, a very big job, to create the Farmers Veteran Coalition out of the back of his pickup truck. Michael, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Uh, thank you for having me, and uh, I'm glad to be here. Well, Michael, what gave you the idea to create the Farmer Veteran Coalition? Uh, I think the inspiration was um, on 9-11. That was definitely a, uh, a day that changed all our lives. Uh, for me, my oldest daughter was at um, Ground Zero. She worked to, mm-hmm. directly across from the, the building facing the Twin Towers. Uh, she got out uh, with just uh, the trauma of, the, of, of being there. But um, within a week, my son um, put on a uniform and joined the U.S. military. So... Uh, um, I was inspired to do something to uh, to help the veterans, and um, in in 2006, a study came out uh, from the Carsey Institute, a University of New Hampshire, that showed the disproportionate number, uh, based on the fatalities of those uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, were now coming. Our all voluntary military was now disproportionately coming from our most rural communities. So. That was just a, a light bulb went out, and I thought, hmm, uh, I bet those men and women would like to come home uh, and find careers in agriculture, and um, maybe I could help them do that. Absolutely. You couldn't have better motivation than that. Well, when you were also able to secure significant funding from the Iraq and Afghanistan Deployment Impact Fund, which was handling at that time the nation's largest private donation made on behalf of American veterans, how did that make a difference in what you were doing? Oh, I think it put us on the map. Um, that fund was significant, and there were 50 groups uh, that were vetted and put into that um, um, organization that formed the Coalition for Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans. And we came along um, a year into that proposal. But the uh, woman that was doing the vetting heard about what we were doing, and uh, the, it resonated with the funder, and it resonated with her. And uh, we got a chance to, uh, uh, we got a smaller grant, but something that put us on the map. And it really what it did is it got me to D.C. to talk about the veterans in agriculture and that uh, of all the men and women returning home, um, there's uh, just a wonderful organizations have sprung up and have many been around for a long time and many new ones to help um, help them this time around. But there was really none focused on agriculture, and uh, there was none really focused on those returning to our rural communities. So there was a real uh, need there, and um, we jumped in. So, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by your mission statement. You're focused on creating a new generation of farmers and food leaders. That's important for all of agriculture, for all of the food industry. Tell me a bit more about that. You know, I didn't have a military background, but but getting to start this project, I'm just uh, in daily awe of the of the leadership and a, a, a certain power that the men and women who are our members have. And I think it comes not just from 
from their military service, but certainly from their military service and that they're applying that. They did one very difficult, challenging, real gritty thing and they're jumping right into another mm-hmm. and it just makes a um they're just the best they're you know they're the strongest they're the smartest and they're the most capable and uh i really see a lot of leadership in them every single day what i really hear from farmers and ranchers all the time is how difficult their job is but to your point you know coming back from iraq and afghanistan farming looks yeah really good you know I got it. <laughs> yeah, some of you know, and even you know, we joke a lot, but we even say things like, uh, you know, the hyper vigilance that uh, people associate with those that uh, suffer from uh, post traumatic stress. Yep. I say, well, you know, that's great in farming. You know, you, you have a lot of things to keep your eyes out for and ears out for. So, the best thing that we have to offer the veterans is it's a really purpose driven military are all voluntary military and particularly those that went in post 9-11, which is most of our members, mm-hmm. you know, there's a certain yearning for that sense of purpose and, uh, and finding something as meaningful when they come out. And we're finding that, that farming and a career in agriculture has meaning beyond just a livelihood. And so that's been our real secret to our success and the secret to, to their success. Well, one of your guiding principles is to recognize the geographic and psychological isolation, to your point, that's common to both farmers and veterans. Um, Also, I love that you're creating a contact between these farmer veterans. Michael, you've built a strong community, helped many, many people by giving them a second chance in financial security. It's an honor to meet you. You are one of farmers' true leaders. I thank you for joining us today on Farm Food Facts. Thank you for having us. And now, the news you need to know. The Save Farm program is giving veterans a path after their service. The Kansas-based program is offering veterans a new path forward through farming. The Service Member Agriculture Vocation Education, or SAVE, Farm Program is an 11-month certificate program that combines classroom work with hands-on training on an actual farm in order to teach veterans everything they need to know to operate their own farm. Farm Coordinator Timothy Hyman says, You go take care of your livestock, your crops. You're starting with something really small, and then you're watching it grow. So you're using your hands and your knowledge. It gives you a sense of purpose. The program operates a nearby farm where they teach and grow crops and they're currently making an effort to raise money to build housing for veterans and their families to live on site. The program is covered by the GI Bill and the Veteran Administration's Vocational Rehab Program. What grocers need to know is that the SAVE program and Farmers Veteran Coalition are just two great examples of how ag is helping our veterans. We urge every supermarket retailer to reach out to ag groups in their own communities to discover about these programs and to get involved and form relationships with these first-generation dedicated farmers. And for our other news story today, the average age of hired farm laborers is on the rise. Between 2006 and 2017, the average age of hired farm laborers have risen 8%. This increase appears to be driven by the aging of foreign-born farm laborers who make up between 54 and 58 percent of the workforce over this period. Their average age again rose 16 percent in 2017. In contrast, the average age of farm laborers born here in the United States has remained roughly the same. 
the primary reason the decline of new immigrants. Farmers are also faced with a labor shortage. Amid the ongoing federal emphasis on immigration enforcement, Phillips Mushroom Farm in Pennsylvania is experiencing a shortage of labor. Business is booming, but there aren't enough harvesters. Some mushroom and dairy farmers in need of labor have started turning to inmate work-related release programs and organizations like those already mentioned in today's Farm Food Facts that help veterans find employment. Another response, especially in regards to the aging farm workforce, has been to increase the use of technology and mechanical aids. These changes may help enable workers to prolong their careers and may also make it easier for more women to work in agriculture. What grocers need to know is that farm labor is an important issue that is affecting both supply and cost. And now let's head to Tennessee to meet first-generation farmer Matt Nicewander. The average age of a U.S. farmer and rancher today is 58 years old, and a whopping 40% of them are over 65. One of the most important priorities that we have is to attract younger people onto our farms and ranches. Of the five pathways that U.S. farmers and ranchers are focused on is collaboration. Collaboration to encourage farmers and ag experts to work together with health professionals and technology experts in order to make our ag system more efficient, also more profitable, and appeal to the next generation of farmers. Each week here on Farm Food Facts, you hear from those fifth or sixth generation farmers. God bless them. But today, we're going to talk to Matt Nicewander, a first generation farmer. Matt, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Hey, uh, thanks for having me here today. I appreciate the time you're taking and recognizing beginning farmers and ranchers as myself and and, uh, the advocacy you guys are doing on our part across the agricultural community as a whole. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Matt, I have to ask you this. You know, you have a bachelor's degree, you have a master's degree with a focus on medicine. Farming is hard work. Why be a young farmer? As a young child, I think we all kind of dream and fantasize about the farm life and the animals and just the lifestyle. And 16 years old, I was looking for a job. I grew up in a, a small community, was not part of the farming community at all. I have no farming background, no family that farms. But one of my first jobs was on a dairy farm. Crazy as it sounds, and if you're a dairy person out there, you understand that's hard work. That job kind of led me into agriculture. I fell in love with the cattle. I uh, didn't love the three o'clock in the morning uh, milkings at all, but, <laughs> right. but I did fall in love with the cows. And uh, that job at 16 years old just instilled something in me that that it wasn't in my in my blood, but it it, it was in my heart really quickly. And uh, I was really passionate and fell in love with with agriculture there even more. Something that stuck with me from the time I got married. Uh, to my wife, and, and we went to uh, both went to school and, and uh, got my master's degree. Uh, I work as a nurse practitioner full time as well, and I bought a farm in 2014. And that uh, I, I figured out quick. I've always been a hard worker. Uh, work ethics always been strong and been instilled in me from an early age. That's something that that has carried over to agriculture, and I, it has served me well. Uh, some days better than others, but. Uh, you know, I love the office job and I love, I love taking care of patients and, and seeing sick people and getting them on the track to, to better health. But there's nothing like getting your hands dirty um, and getting out there, uh, taking care of cattle and raising your family on a farm. You know, that, that really is been the biggest benefit. We've got three kids and uh, I'm really glad we can raise them in the agricultural community. So now you're a full-fledged cattleman. But as you said, you started from scratch. 
this is a big investment. How are you able to get started, get the money and make it happen? There's, there's several barriers, uh, some that I anticipated, but some that I didn't anticipate and really couldn't prepare for. You know, some, some lessons you just got to learn on your own. Uh, you can't read from a book and somebody really can't tell you. But I will say I've had some of the absolute best mentors uh, that you could possibly ask for. The biggest thing for a beginning farmer uh, that I would say is going to be the biggest hurdle to cover is going to be the financial investment. Uh, that, that capital investment that it takes just to get off the ground. Uh, is very, very daunting. Uh, you know, you, you buy land, but you've only scratched the surface. You know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you, you've got to buy equipment, you've got to buy cattle or livestock or uh, whatever you need for your particular farming uh, operation or venture. Uh, that capital investment um, has been very difficult. Luckily, in my state of Tennessee, uh, they've got a program called the Advanced Master Beef Producers Program uh, that is there to assist farmers that are either very well-established, multi-generational, or beginning farmers like myself. It's got a lot of educational classes you can take, uh, which for me was probably more benefit than the money because I had to learn uh, these, these tactics and, and skills that people have learned for generations. Uh, and I will say, I'm, if there ever was one, I'm absolutely a YouTube farmer. Um, you know, I learned almost, if we need to fix something at our house or on our car, we YouTube. YouTube. Well, I need to know how to, <laughs> how to pull a calf yeah. or castrate a bull or plant grass seed, I YouTubed it. So that that's uh, those, those two, knowledge deficit and the capital investment are, were the uh, hardest things. But those are the ways that I made it work uh, in my state and uh, the networking opportunities through the Young Farmers and Ranchers organization that I'm, I'm currently the chairman of here in Tennessee. Uh, is it, it can I can't speak enough volumes of how much that has helped me through this transition into, full, into farming in my community. So I'd like to switch to... You know, your other uniform, uh, your medical uniform. And and I see through your medical and personal experiences that you've become a very active voice also, in addition to farming, for the opioid crisis in rural America. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so it was an um, interesting dynamic. So I was, to give you a little background history, uh, I was actually raised by uh, my parents were both addicted to drugs, uh, um, opiates, crack cocaine, uh, lots of different things they were doing. And I, I grew up in that environment. So uh, drug addiction hits home literally with me and always has. Uh, so that's a very personal um, uh, uh, battle that I fight for other people that I see children going through as well, the same situation I was in. Um, it, uh, as I started in the pharma community, you never think of an opioid crisis in rural America. Right. I, I just... Uh, to be not to sound simple minded, but I think of it as an urban problem, you know, drug addiction and that kind of thing. And I know we have it in rural America, but never thought opiates would be. Well, uh, as I got to studying and researching and going through my medical degree and, and uh, uh, eventually graduating and taking care of patients, I began to find out very quickly that opioid prescribing in rural America was much, much higher than that of urban America. Um, and specifically in Tennessee, wow. we're unfortunately. Uh, not proud of it, but we're at the top of the charts a lot of times for opioid prescribing. Um, and that, that became a, uh, uh, something that I gave a lot of personal attention to. Never, I never imagined that it would become a national issue for rural America, uh, places like Farm Bureau and the National Farmers Union, taking that on as a task to combat the opioid crisis. So uh, as I sit in my office and take care of a lot of the farmer community, they come and see me, they I wear my boots to work, you know, and I work cows before I come mm -hmm. to work and work cows when I get off work. Um, 
these farmers come in and, and farmers get hurt exponentially higher than any other uh, career path in, in the world. Um, so they're seeking medical care in emergency rooms and, and local primary care physicians offices like mine. Uh, and, and a lot of times opiates are prescribed and people just don't understand that opiates are addicting or can be addicting. And, uh, the same as uh, an opiate has the same response in your body as you, um, using heroin. And if I told you that before you received your pain prescription for a broken bone or, or something like that, you would probably think twice before taking that medicine. And that, that's the message that I'm trying to get out there, you know, make an informed decision. Um, understand the risk you put at yourself. It takes three days to get addicted to wow. these opiates. Uh, when you get a prescription, it's typically five days or more. So that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the information we're trying to share on a national uh, level. So May is Mental Health Awareness Month. What would you like all farmers throughout the nation, what would you like you know, food companies, what would you like supermarkets to understand about mental health awareness? Mental health in rural America is is a huge problem. Um, I think we could point the finger at a lot of different things, but I think it all comes back down to one issue, and that's that the lack of resources in rural America for mental health services. Uh, we just had it. I just had a discussion last night with a uh, psychologist friend of mine about um, trying to get a friend of ours access to a, a, a therapist in our area. And we've come to find out that it's three months before you get these patients that are in a critical wow. stage of their life to get evaluated, just to get checked out uh, huh. and, and then get some treatment. Well, if, if somebody comes to you to, to, into my office to see me, they're, they usually don't catch it on the front and they wait till they get where they can't handle it themselves. You know, they try to either self-medicate or self-treat, which is, goes right back to the drug addiction problems. Um, they, they try to self-medicate with these, with these drugs. And then by the time they get to me, they're really past crisis mode, to be honest with you. Um, and if I can't get them in for three months, that ties my hands that, you know, puts them at risk for suicide and, uh, and, and, and all kind of plethora of issues. Um, we, we've chosen to, to highlight that along with the opioid crisis, because like I said, a lot of these, um, a lot of these people with mental health, health disorders choose to self-medicate because they have no access to treatment. They, they don't have the finances to get uh, to a larger facility hours away um, and, uh, and, and not having those resources or support systems. They're left to, to tread water and fend for themselves. Well, Matt, I, you know, you're a true leader. I, I applaud your medical practice. I applaud your farming practices uh, wish you all the best and thank you so much for joining us today on Farm Food Facts. Yeah, thank you for having me. And um, uh, please feel free to reach out to me if you ever need anything in the future. We will. I am sure we will. Thank you. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab and visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.